I'd like us to pray this morning, can we, as we come to the word of God. Father, we come and we acknowledge your presence here with us. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your truth. We pray that as we search your scriptures, that your word might search us. As we read the Bible, may the Bible read us. May our hearts be awakened, Lord. May our hearts be stirred and challenged, Lord, even concerning the truth that lie therein. So, God, we come to you today and thank you. Bless the children today, Lord, in their Sunday school. Lord, that you might speak into their hearts as well. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like us to read a passage of Scripture if you brought your Bibles with you here today. And the passage I wanted to call your attention to was 1 Kings chapter 19, reading from verse 1 through to verse 14. And then later we're going to go on to verse 15 down to verse 18. But to pick the story up from where we left off last time... We find Elijah with this amazing confrontation of the power and the presence of God that came down and the fire of God was poured out upon that false altar. The prophets of Baal were judged. The altar of God was vindicated. God's presence was realised. That the word of the Lord would come to judge the false prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth were put to the sword by the prophet. And all of this incredible outworking of the power and the presence of God. And that's where we find Elijah. That's where the scripture records in terms of his actions and also his reactions. And today we're going to be looking at something of those events that transpired as a direct result of that victory on Carmel. What happened following the denunciation of the word of the Lord against those who would preach and practice pagan religion? What would happen once God had spoken and the fire of God revealed? What were those things that Elijah would wrestle with? Because as we understand anything about chapter 18, which directly precedes this chapter, that actually, following the victory on Carmel, then the Lord sends rain. God brings to an end that season of drought and famine. And Elijah was very much instrumental in that, in how he called upon God. But it was God himself who would bring that season of judgment to an end. But... The significance of that cannot be underestimated in terms of the word of the Lord. But I wanted to then pick up on chapter 19 of 1 Kings, which reveals these words. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to be a Sheba which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough, O Lord, take away my life, 
for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank. And he went in the strength that he received from the food that he'd eaten. And for 40 days and 40 nights he went to Horeb, the mount of God. Then he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord and the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek to take my life, to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a slow whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left and they seek my life to take it away. And we're going to read further in a few moments. But what an incredible contrast whereby one moment Elijah is on top of the mountain and the fire of the Lord is poured out. But then within a few short days, maybe or weeks, the mountain is on top of Elijah. Very often that's how it works, isn't it? One minute we can experience great victories and confidence and breakthrough. And yet why is it one minute we can know the greatness of God and the intervention of the Lord and yet suddenly something happens and we feel as though all hell is arrayed against us and some battle out of nowhere ensues and we find ourselves wrestling and we find ourselves wondering and worrying and caught in anxiety. One minute we're seeing God move and we know his presence and his power but then on the other hand within a short space of time we find ourselves in some kind of conflict, some kind of battle. And maybe the greatest battle that we face is not the one that goes on around us. Maybe the greatest battle that we face, like Elijah, is the one that goes on within us. The wrestling within our own hearts. Those issues that trouble us from within. And friends, as we understand the word of the Lord here today, certainly that was Elijah's experience. God used him mightily on more than one occasion. And yet here we find him running in fear and in trembling and in intimidation. We find him on his own, isolated, crying out to God. A pity party ensued 
Was he justified in that? Well, some would say yes. Some would say no. Certainly God came to the rescue. And that's what I want us to focus our attention on here today. But I think the thing that really stands out is the whole issue around spiritual depression. Elijah was depressed, wasn't he? Elijah wrestled. And he wondered. And he thought that he was on his own. And you could say, well, this man... This prophet, where's his faith? Why is he confessing such negativity? Well, that doesn't mean to say that he wasn't a man of faith. It just simply means that he was going through a difficult season. And sometimes it's okay not to be okay. It's not the end of the world if you find yourself questioning and doubting. I suppose it's one thing to doubt, it's another thing to remain in a spirit of doubt. But Elijah finds himself in a place where others found themselves. But I would say here today that it's okay not to be okay. Because in the wrestling, the struggling, there are lessons to be learned that can't be learned in any other way. And the first point I wanted to make out of six here today is this. The great victories are often followed by spiritual attack. Elijah was confronted... By the intimidation of the wife of the king. Look what the Bible says. That Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. And how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying. So may the gods do to me and more also. If I do not make the life. Your life. Likened unto one of them. By this time tomorrow and then he goes on to say then he was afraid therein lies the crossover the messenger of the queen this Phoenician princess spoke to Elijah and said this is what she says she's after you and by this time tomorrow you're going to be like one of those prophets that you slew But interestingly enough with this, what was the very essence of this message that Elijah received? It was one of intimidation, manipulation and control. It was, to put it very bluntly, a spirit of witchcraft. You see, the thing is, why do I say that? Well, from the text we know that Jezebel knew where Elijah was. The reason why we know that is that she sent her messenger to tell Elijah that by this time tomorrow he's going to be like the prophets that were slain. So she knew where he was. So had she fully intended to follow through on that threat, she could have done it, but she didn't. And very often the threat, the intimidation, the manipulation can be a bigger battle to face than the actual point of conflict. That it's that sense of anxiety and fear that's based on unreasonable aspects of what we hear and what we perceive. She knew where he was. If she'd wanted to kill Elijah, she could have done it. But it was the fact that this message was sent. Intimidation. Manipulation. Control. That was all that this was about. And unfortunately, Elijah was overcome with this and was afraid and ran for his life. 
And when he arrived in Beersheba, he left his servant there. So it's a downhill spiral, isn't it? He hears the message, runs with his servant, leaves his servant and then goes off on his own. That's very often the challenge that ministers, servants of God often face, this sense of isolation. But let me bring it up today, well, certainly into the New Testament context, and we read of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, the second epistle, where Paul would write and he would say, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, and that we despaired of life itself. This is Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles. The one who had an encounter with Jesus. The one who was establishing churches, preaching the gospel, seeing people gloriously saved. Yet in the midst of all of this, there was an incredible tension and conflict that he faced continually. And maybe the conflict was a sure sign that Paul was in the will of God. Very often we think that if things go haywire and problems arise, it's as if we've stepped out of the will of God. But actually, very often the crisis moment can be a sign, not that you are out of the will of God, but in fact, you're exactly where God wants you to be. And Paul said, look, we despaired even of life itself. It doesn't get any lower than that. Spiritual depression is a reality. And anyone who wants to serve the Lord will go through seasons where they struggle. Sometimes it's a struggle to get out of bed in the morning, to make sense of what the day holds. To make sense of what God is saying. Feeling isolated and lonely and depressed. But it's okay not to be okay. But there is an answer. And God doesn't leave us in the valley of the shadow of death. He says, I am with you because I am the lily of the valley. And you are passing through that valley, not pitching your tent in it. And there's a difference. Great victories are often followed by spiritual attack, as Jesus would write and speak so eloquently when it comes to the parable of the sower. He says, there's an often at a time when the seed is sown and the enemy comes immediately to steal the seed. Very often it's immediately after a victory that very often we face a challenge and potential defeat. Why is that? Well, because the enemy wants to kill, steal and to destroy. Sometimes in the celebration of a victory, we lower our guard, we become complacent maybe. We forget to look to the Lord, we revel in the triumph, but actually forget that we need to stay true to the Lord. Lesson number one, great victories are often followed by spiritual attack. So if you're going through a real blessed moment... (laughs) Be on your guard. I'm not saying that to in any way intimidate or discourage anyone, but be on your guard. Keep your eyes fixed upon him. Number two, spiritual attack often drives a believer into seasons of isolation and weariness. As we find with Elijah, he's on his own. As Paul was on his own when he went to Athens. All on his own. And then he went into that great city, that capital city of what was and is Greece. And Paul was all on his own and he went around the city. He was absolutely amazed at the religious spirit that existed in that place. 
But he preached. But then he went to Corinth and he said, look, when I came amongst you, I came in weakness and in fear and in trembling. Not in my own strength, but in the strength of God. Maybe there was something of Paul's experience whereby when he was on his own, he became vulnerable. I know he waited in Athens and others came and joined him. But there was a season when he was just on his own. And sometimes in life, there are seasons when it's just going to be you and God. Whether you like it or not, whether that's the plan, there will be seasons when you'll find yourself isolated. And that's what Elijah found. Now this, unlike the situation with Paul, maybe was more to do with the choice of Elijah. Maybe for Paul as well. For whatever reason, he found himself, certainly for a few days, on his own. But here, Elijah... He's on the run. It's fight, flight, face, fear, whatever, however we choose to respond to the challenges of life. But here, he was on his own. Even his servant was left behind in Beersheba. And he went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and asked the Lord that he might die. Friends, it doesn't get any lower than this, does it? He wanted his life to be taken. The reason for that, I think, was on many different levels. I think it was the intimidation of hearing the messenger of the Queen. I think it was the feeling of, well, I'm the only one. Because very often that's a challenge, isn't it? We're doing the will of God and suddenly there's a season of discouragement and we say to the Lord, well, I'm the only person serving God. I'm the only person working hard in the church. I'm the only person who understands your word. And God says, no, you're not. There's others who serve faithfully. There's other prophets that I have protected. You're not the only voice. There are many voices. Because very often in those seasons of isolation, we tend to focus very much on ourselves. Almost to the point of obsessive thinking. But God says, look, you're not alone. But for Elijah, this season of isolation was a critical point in his own life and ministry. A critical turning point. And I think it's fair to say that, again... That for anyone who wants to serve the Lord, they will face seasons where they feel utterly alone. You may have a big crowd around you. You may have family, you may have friends, but there's that sense to which you feel, I'm all alone. So why does God allow us to go through those kind of seasons? Well, for many reasons, but one in particular is because he wants you to learn to depend upon him and him alone. When you've got a fan club around you, it's very easy to look to friends and family for the very thing that God alone can give you. When you're on your own, you have to strip away those attachments and those relationships, which, albeit may be very positive, actually you're not going to get from them what God alone can give you. And Paul had to understand this. Elijah certainly went through it, but it's a lesson that we all need to learn. Don't expect from others what God alone can give you. Friendship, yes. Support from others, yes. That sense of encouragement is so important. And we need to be a people who encourage one another. 
but we must also keep our eyes on the Lord and keep them fixed upon him. Thirdly, weariness is addressed by physical and spiritual food. We need to learn to feed ourselves. And the remarkable thing here is that as Elijah went on this journey and talked to the Lord, wanting to die, saying that he was no better than his father's, he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. Twice Elijah was told to do just that. Arise and eat a second time and touched him. And then there was some food prepared. Enough food to strengthen him for this journey of 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb. You see, we need to understand, not only does God want to nourish us in a spiritual sense, but friends, we need a reality check that sometimes what we need is something to eat. We need to rest. Stop running around like headless chickens. Sometimes the issues that we face are addressed not only with a sense of spiritual impartation, but also maybe we need a holiday, a break. The angel said, look, arise and eat. You're hungry. Feed that which is natural as well as that which is spiritual. But the problem is in our Greco, our sort of Western world thinking, we've made this distinction between that which is spiritual and that which is carnal. This dichotomy and the early church faced it and a division was made between that which is natural and that which is supernatural. But you go to the land of the Hebrews, you go to Israel and it's a holistic view. Where the natural and the spiritual are all wrapped up together. You've got to take care of your flesh. You've got to take care of the physicality of your life. It's a temple in which God lives by his spirit. And Elijah needed a very practical word from God, which is simply this. You're tired, you're hungry, you've allowed things to get on top of you. Now have something to eat, have a rest, and regather your strength and try to focus your heart. It's a practical word. The angel didn't say to Elijah, what you need is to go off to some kind of prophecy conference or you need to listen to all these tapes and you need to read this and read that and you need to pray more, you need to fast more, you need to do more. And very often that is one of the subtle pressures that is often brought to bear on folk. What I call do more theology. Do more. Well, if you've got a problem, well, you need to pray more. You need to fast more, you need to go to more meetings, you need to do this, you need to do that. When in fact God says, look, yes, there may be times and seasons where we have to up the ante in terms of what we do, but sometimes we have to step back in order to step up. Does that make any sense? We have to simply take some time out. It's important that as people we look after ourselves, both physically and spiritually. In the life of ancient Israel, there was the Sabbath rest, foreshadowing Jesus, we know, in the eternal finished work of Jesus. But there's something in there that God understands you better than you know yourself, and you need to learn to rest. You need to learn to arise and eat. God's prepared some food for you too. 
Okay, it's natural, but also there's a spiritual sense to which as Paul would understand that as he would feed upon the word of the Lord, that which fed him, fed his church. What I received from the Lord, I passed on to him, to those who were around the table, to the church that I would write to. Paul understood all of this and more, but arise and eat. There was some cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. Very simple menu, but it was enough. What are you feeding yourself on today? What is on the menu? Because what feeds you feeds other people. If you get hungry, so do the people that you're seeking to help and serve. The psalmist says that God prepares a banquet, doesn't he? In the presence of our enemies, he prepares a table. So weariness is addressed by physical and spiritual food. We need to learn to feed ourselves. Then fourthly, God's small voice comes to us to challenge us. Elijah, where are you? What are you doing here? God wants to search the heart and mind of the prophet. It wasn't because God didn't know. No more so that when God said in the garden, Adam, where are you? God knew exactly where Adam was. So the question was not because God was in need of some information. It was to actually provoke the person who'd heard the question to think about their geographic and spiritual location. So God says to Elijah, the word of the Lord came to the prophet. What are you doing here? It's a strange question, but God would ask every single one of us here today. What are you doing here? And I'm not saying about why are you in the meeting? Why are you in Sandidno today? But in terms of your spiritual location in life, what are you doing there? Are you in the right place? Yes or no? God loves to provoke us. God loves to awaken our curiosity and say, look, where are you today in the walk of God and in the word of God and in the plan of God for your life? Where are you on the journey? Elijah heard the answer. He certainly understood the question. But then the answer came very clearly from the lips of the prophet. Oh, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the Lord of hosts. Oh, I've been very zealous. It's not my problem. I've been very zealous. It's Israel. They've forsaken your covenants. They've forsaken your word. I'm the only one left. The prophets have been killed with the sword. And they seek my life to take it away. You could say that Elijah was right in one sense, but then so wrong in another sense. Sometimes we have to be careful that our well-meaning confessions aren't just a veneer for unbelief. What we're saying is right, but actually the motive behind what we say is wrong. And what Elijah was saying, he was just being honest and open, but the actual undercurrent, the thread of inspiration behind his words was actually wrong and God had to come to him and suddenly everything starts to change suddenly there's things taking place it talks here about the fact that there was a great and strong wind that tore the mountains and broke the pieces the rocks before the Lord but the Lord wasn't in the wind and after the wind an earthquake but the Lord was not in the earthquake and after the earthquake fire but the Lord was not in the fire and after the fire the sound of a low whisper and when Elijah heard it 
suddenly things start to change. Sometimes we expect God to show up with a brass band, an army of angels, some trumpets, the glory cloud appearing in our meeting to tell you to do what he's already told you to do. But actually, more often than not, when he comes, he doesn't come with a fanfare. He doesn't come with an earthquake or some wind or some fire. It is the still, small voice. That's what we've got to learn to listen to. And in order to listen to that, you've got to make sure that there's food on the table and your heart are before the Lord. In order to listen to the small, still, small voice, you've got to arise and eat. Because sometimes hunger pains drown out the voice of God. I'll say that again. Hunger pains, whether that be physical maybe, or more importantly spiritual, very often the sound of our hunger can drown out the voice of God. If we're not looking after ourselves, if we're not in God's Sabbath rest, then we're going to struggle to make sense of what God is saying. And this is what happened Twice God said to Elijah, where are you? Or more importantly, what are you doing here? I'm sure Elijah was looking for God to agree with him. Yes, poor Elijah, you've been so faithful. Oh, it's been so hard. Oh, that woman, that witch. Oh, isn't she a pain in the neck? Oh, poor Elijah, you're the only one left. Let's pat you on the head doesn't do that sometimes we want God to do that we sometimes we want God to agree with our our vulnerabilities we want God to patronize us and agree with our negativity and he refuses to do it not that he doesn't love us it's because he loves us too much to put up with our whatever our thinking is you see the question was asked, what are you doing here, Elijah? Oh, and again, Elijah says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. And goes on to say basically what he'd said before. He was basically in a real mess. What he was saying was probably right. He was zealous. Israel had forsaken the covenants. Yes, prophets had been killed, although... Not to the degree to which Elijah thought. So what Elijah was saying was true, but it was not based on truth. And there's a difference. Sometimes we can confess something that's true, but it has no bearing on truth. It's truth that sets you free. Not confessing what is true. Now you probably think that's semantics, but actually it's very important to understand that. Because it's the truth of God's word that matters. And that's what God wanted to bring home to the prophet. Which brings us on to point number five. Often seasons of attack prepare us for the next assignment. Okay, so we're up to date. We've had this pity party. God has said, where are you, Elijah? And then the word of the Lord says. And the Lord said to him in verse 15, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus and when you arrive you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria and Jehu the king of Nimshi you shall anoint to be king over Israel and Elisha 
the son of Shaphad of Abel Melaloa. You shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. So here we have it. We're moving on, aren't we? Elijah's had his moment in the wilderness, desperation, fear, wanting to die and all of this. But then the word of the Lord comes and says, you've still got a job to do. Pick yourself up, arise and eat and get on with the task. Do three things. Appoint three leaders, two kings and your successor. Appoint Hazael and Jehu. But more importantly, appoint your successor, Elisha. And that's exactly what happened. And the focus from now on is upon this succession process between Elijah and Elisha. So what is God saying? Well, whatever troubles you go through and what seasons you face and what darkness envelops you, it is there... Yes, so that you might learn lessons that can't be learnt in any other way. But there's coming a new day. God is saying, look, I've not finished with you, Elijah. Don't listen to the witch from the north. Don't listen to those inner voices of turmoil within you. Stop playing with your own emotions and fulfil my commission over your life. Get back to doing what I've called you to do. Go and raise up a successor. What is your legacy? Because if it's one thing that gets us on focus and back on track is when we look beyond ourselves and think about the next generation. Who is there that the Lord wants to raise up? Who is there that the Lord wants to bring in? And that's what we need to see as a church. Who does God want to add to this family? Children, young people, the elderly, the young, those in need, all manner of different people. They're all welcome. What does God want to do amongst us? Are we going to be like Elijah and say, well, we've been so faithful, Lord, and it's so hard. I've tried my best, Lord. And we're trying to get sympathy out of the Lord. And sometimes God doesn't give sympathy because if he did, that wouldn't help us. And when it comes to the ministry gifts of the Bible, we have apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. More often than not, when people face a difficulty and a tragedy and they need some help and support, what they want is maybe a mercy ministry. They want a pastor to come along and put his or her arm around them and to comfort them and help them, which is very appropriate and so needed at so many different times. But more often than not, What a person needs is not so much a pastor to bring some compassion. What they need is a prophet to say, this is the word of the Lord. Shape up and move forward. I know in my own life over many years that you go through different seasons and you're looking for some encouragement. You're looking for some help and support. Somebody to agree with you in how you feel. 
to confirm that how you feel is acceptable, when in fact it's not. Because it's a pity party, not a praise party. And what God has often done is not bring someone into my life who kind of brings that mercy ministry. Very often, it's a good kick up the backside. Stop focusing on the things that you shouldn't be focusing on. Yes, God wants to strengthen you and the God of all comfort wants to help you. But at the same time, the prophetic word of the Lord is, this is God's word over your life, walk ye in it. And that's what Elijah needed to hear. Have you noticed that God never agreed with Elijah? God never entered into Elijah's state of mind. He simply says, look, I've got another to-do list for you. There's some post-it notes on the fridge in heaven with three assignments on them. And these are those assignments. Appoint this king, appoint that king, and get your successor in place. Because you are only a success if you have a successor. It's the next generation. So this is what happened. And God reminds Elijah, look, the 7,000 in Israel, you think you're on your own, but the 7,000 who are still on track. 7,000, this theme of the remnant runs throughout the Bible, and especially in the book of Romans, where Paul says, God has a remnant, a chosen remnant saved by grace. Let me move on and draw to a conclusion here today. So sixthly and finally, God reminds us that we are not alone. God says, look, I'm here. I'm in charge of this thing. You think that it's all down to you, but God says it's not down to you, it's down to me. I've taken steps, I've got things in hand. Whatever you face today, the easiest thing, if it's a challenge, is to think, I'm on my own, there's no support, there's no prayer backing, there's no phone call, there's no this. Well, that may be true, that may not be true, but what God says is, look, I've got it all in hand. You think it's the end of the world, and there's no more prophets except you. You're wrong, Elijah. The 7,000 at least who are faithful to my word. God's got incredible capacity and energy for ensuring that the glory and the purpose of his kingdom stays on track. And this is what he says. God reminds us that we are not alone. And that's what God says to you today. You may feel it, you may be going through seasons where this seems to be the only outlook that you have. And the temptation then is to give in to the natural inclination of our own flesh and wallow in that. And I suppose, like I've said, it's okay not to be okay. But there's a God who has a word for your life. Arise and eat. Whatever you feel today, arise and eat. Because God has a plan for you. If you need a holiday, book a holiday. If you need to clear your diary, clear your diary. If you need to take some time out to go and pray and to seek the Lord, do it. If you need to take your husband or your wife out for a good evening meal in a nice restaurant, do it. You say, well, what's that got to do with serving the Lord? It's everything to do with serving the Lord. It's being practical and understanding that you are a human person, you are a jar of clay, and you need to find rest, and you need to find strength, and you need to stop getting stressed over issues that God is not bothered about. And focus on his call 
and His will for your life. Amen? Is that okay? I've not upset anyone this morning. No? That's good. Anyway, let's just pray together, shall we, as we come to the Lord and thank Him for His word.